History of England, Chapter 12, Part 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Twelve, Part Five. The Count of Avaux, whose sagacity had detected all the plans of William, and who had vainly recommended a policy which would probably have frustrated them, was the man on whom the choice of Louis fell. In abilities, Avaux had no superior among the numerous able diplomats whom his country then possessed. His demeanor was singularly pleasing, his person handsome, his temper bland. His manners and conversation were those of a gentleman who had been bred in the most polite and magnificent of all courts, who had represented that court both in Roman Catholic and Protestant countries, and who had acquired in his wanderings the art of catching the tone of any society into which chance might throw him. He was eminently vigilant and adroit, fertile in resources, and skillful in discovering the weak parts of a character. His own character, however, was not without its weak parts. The consciousness that he was of plebeian origin was the torment of his life. He pined for nobility with a pining at once pitiable and ludicrous. Able, experienced, and accomplished as he was, he sometimes, under the influence of this mental disease, descended to the level of Moliere's Jourdain, and entertained malicious observers with scenes almost as laughable as that in which the honest draper was made a mamushi. It would have been well if this had been the worst, but it is not too much to say that of the difference between right and wrong of Aux had no more notion than a brute. One sentiment was to him, in the place of religion and morality, a superstitious and intolerant devotion to the crown which he served. This sentiment pervades all his dispatches, and gives a color to all his thoughts and words. Nothing that tended to promote the interest of the French monarchy seemed to him a crime. Indeed, he appears to have taken it for granted that not only Frenchmen, but all human beings, owed a natural allegiance to the House of Bourbon, and that whoever hesitated to sacrifice the happiness and freedom of his own native country to the glory of that house was a traitor. While he resided 
at the Hague, he always designated those Dutchmen who had sold themselves to France as the well-intentioned party. In the letters which he wrote from Ireland, the same feeling appears still more strongly. He would have been a more sagacious politician if he had sympathized more with those feelings of moral approbation and disapprobation which prevail among the vulgar, for his own indifference to all considerations of justice and mercy was such that, in his schemes, he made no allowance for the conscience and sensibilities of his neighbors. More than once he deliberately recommended wickedness so horrible that wicked men recoiled from it with indignation. But they could not succeed even in making their scruples intelligible to him. To every remonstrance he listened with a cynical sneer, wondering within himself whether those who lectured him were such fools as they professed to be, or were only shamming. Such was the man whom Lewis selected to be the companion and monitor of James. A vox was charged to open, if possible, a communication with the malcontents in the English Parliament, and he was authorized to expend, if necessary, a hundred thousand crowns among them. James arrived at Brest on the 5th of March, embarked there on board of a man of war called the St. Michael, and sailed within forty-eight hours. He had ample time, however, before his departure, to exhibit some of the faults by which he had lost England and Scotland, and by which he was about to lose Ireland. A Vaux wrote from the harbor of Brest that it would not be easy to conduct any important business in concert with the King of England. His Majesty could not keep any secret from anybody. The very foremost men of the St. Michael had already heard him say things which ought to have been reserved for the ears of his confidential advisers. The voyage was safely and quietly performed, and, on the afternoon of the 12th of March, James landed in the harbor of Kinsale. By the Roman Catholic population, he was received with shouts of unfeigned transport. The few Protestants who remained in that part of the country joined in greeting him, and perhaps not insincerely. For though an enemy of their religion, he was not an enemy of their nation, and they might reasonably hope that the worst king would show somewhat more respect for law and property than had been shown by the merry boys and rapparees. The vicar of Kinsale 
was among those who went to pay their duty. He was presented by the Bishop of Chester, and was not ungraciously received. James learned that his case was prospering in the three southern provinces of Ireland, the Protestants were disarmed, and were so effectively bowed down by terror that he had nothing to apprehend from them. In the north there was some show of resistance, but Hamilton was marching against the malcontents, and there was little doubt that they would easily be crushed. A day was spent at Kinsale, in putting the arms and ammunition out of reach of danger. Horses, sufficient to carry a few travelers, were, with some difficulty, procured. And on the 14th of March, James proceeded to Cork. We should greatly err if we imagined that the road by which he entered the city bore any resemblance to the stately approach which strikes the traveler of the nineteenth century with admiration. At present, Cork, though deformed by many miserable relics of a former age, holds no mean place among the ports of the empire. The shipping is more than half what the shipping of London was at the time of the revolution. The customs exceed the whole revenue which the whole kingdom of Ireland, in the most peaceful and prosperous times, yielded to the Stuarts. The town is adorned by broad and well-built streets, by fair gardens, by a Corinthian portico which would do honor to Palladio, and by a Gothic college worthy to stand in the high street of Oxford. In 1689, the city extended over about one-tenth part of the space which it now covers, and was intersected by muddy streams, which have long been concealed by arches and buildings. A desolate marsh, in which the sportsmen who pursued the waterfowl sank deep in water and mire at every step, covered the area now occupied by stately buildings, the palaces of the great commercial societies. There was only a single street in which two-wheeled carriages could pass each other. From this street diverged two right and left alleys, squalid and noisome beyond the belief of those who have formed their notions of misery from the most miserable part of St. Giles and Whitechapel. One of these alleys, called, and by comparison justly called, Broad Lane, is about ten feet wide. From such places, now seats of hunger and pestilence, abandoned to the most wretched of mankind, the citizens poured forth to welcome James. He was received with military honors by McCarthy, who held the chief command in Munster. It was impossible for the king to proceed immediately to Dublin. 
for the southern counties had been so completely laid waste by the banditti, whom the priests had called to arms, that the means of locomotion were not easily to be procured. Horses had become rarities. In a large district there were only two carts, and those of ox pronounced good for nothing. Some days elapsed before the money which had been brought from France, though no very formidable mass, could be dragged over the few miles which separated Cork from Kinsale. While the king and his council were employed in trying to procure carriages and beasts, Tyrconnell arrived from Dublin. He held encouraging language. The opposition of Enniskillen he seemed to have thought deserving of little consideration. Londonderry, he said, was the only important post held by the Protestants, and even Londonderry would not, in his judgment, hold out many days. At length, James was able to leave Cork for the capital. On the road, the shrewd and observant of Aux made many remarks. The first part of the journey was through wild highlands, where it was not strange that there should be few traces of art and industry. But, from Kilkenny to the gates of Dublin, the path of the travelers lay over gently undulating ground with natural verdure. That fertile district should have been covered with flocks and herds, orchards and cornfields, but it was an unfilled and unpeopled desert. Even in the towns the artisans were very few. Manufactured articles were hardly to be found, and if found could only be procured only at immense prices. The truth was that most of the English inhabitants had fled, and that art, industry, and capital had fled with them. James received on his progress numerous marks of the goodwill of the peasantry, but marks such as, to men bred in the courts of France and England, had an uncouth and ominous appearance. Though very few laborers were seen at work and in the fields, the road was lined by rapparees, armed with skeins, stakes, and half-pikes, who crowded to look upon the deliverer of their race. The highway along which he traveled presented the aspect of a street in which a fair is held. Pipers came forth to play before him in a style which was not exactly that of the French opera and the villagers danced wildly to the music. Long frieze mantles, resembling those which Spencer had, a century before, described as meat-beds for rebels, and apt cloaks for thieves, were spread along the path which the cavalcade was to tread, and garlands in which cabbage-stalks, 
supplied the place of laurels, were offered to the royal hand. The women insisted on kissing his majesty, but it should seem that they bore little resemblance to their posterity. For this compliment was so distasteful to him that he ordered his retinue to keep them at a distance. On the 24th of March, he entered Dublin. The city was then, in extent and population, the second in the British Isles. It contained between six and seven thousand houses, and probably above thirty thousand inhabitants. In wealth and beauty, however, Dublin was inferior to many English towns. Of the graceful and stately public buildings, which now adorn both sides of the Liffey, scarcely one had even been projected. The college, a very different edifice from that which now stands on the same site, lay quite out of the city. The ground which at present is occupied by Leinster House and Charlemont House, by Sackville Street and Marion Square, was open meadow. Most of the dwellings were built of timber, and have long given place to more substantial edifices. The castle had in 1686 been almost uninhabitable. Clarendon had complained that he knew of no gentleman in Pall Mall who was not more conveniently and handsomely lodged than the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. No public ceremony could be performed in a becoming manner under the viceregal roof. Nay, in spite of the constant glazing and tiling, the rain perpetually drenched the apartments. Tyrconnell, since he became Lord Deputy, had erected a new building, somewhat more commodious. To this building the king was conducted in a state through the southern part of the city. Every exertion had been made to give an air of festivity and splendor to the district which he was to traverse. The streets, which were generally deep in mud, were strewn with gravel. Boughs and flowers were scattered over the path. Tapestry and arras hung from the windows of those who could afford to exhibit such finery. The poor supplied the place of rich stuffs with blankets and coverlids. In one place was stationed a troop of friars with a cross. In another, a company of forty girls dressed in white and carrying nosegays. Pipers and harpers played, quote, the king shall enjoy his own again. End quote. The Lord Deputy carried the sword of state before his master. The judges, the heralds, the Lord Mayor, and aldermen appeared in all the pomp of office. Soldiers were drawn up on the right and left to keep the passages clear. A procession of twenty coaches 
belonging to public functionaries, was mustered. Before the castle gate, the king was met with the host under a canopy borne by four bishops of his church. At the sight he fell on his knees and passed some time in devotion. He then rose and was conducted to the chapel of his palace. Once, such are the vicissitudes of human things, the riding house of Henry Cromwell. A tedium was performed in honor of his majesty's arrival. The next morning he held a privy council, discharged Chief Justice Keating from any further attendance at the board, ordered a vox and Bishop Cartwright to be sworn in, and issued a proclamation convoking a parliament to meet at Dublin on the 7th of May. When the news that James had arrived in Ireland reached London, the sorrow and alarm were general, and were mingled with serious discontent, the multitude not making sufficient allowance for the difficulties by which William was encompassed on every side, loudly blamed his neglect. To all the invectives of the ignorant and malicious he opposed, as was his wont, nothing but immutable gravity and the silence of profound disdain. But few minds had received from nature a temper so firm as his, and still fewer had undergone so long and so rigorous a discipline. The reproaches which had no power to shake his fortitude tried from childhood upwards by both extremes of fortune inflicted a deadly wound on a less resolute heart. While all the coffee-houses were unanimously resolving that a fleet and army ought to have been long before sent to Dublin and wondering how so renowned a politician as his majesty could have been duped by hamilton and tyrconnel a gentleman went down to the temple stairs called a boat and desired to be pulled to greenwich he took the cover of a letter from his pocket scratched a few lines with a pencil and laid the paper on the seat with some silver for his fare. As the boat passed under the dark central arc of London Bridge, he sprang into the water and disappeared. It was found that he had written these words, quote, My folly in undertaking what I could not execute hath done the king great prejudice which cannot be stopped. No easier way for me than this. May his undertakings prosper. May he have a blessing. End quote. There was no signature, but the body was soon found and proved to be that of John Temple. He was young and highly accomplished. He was heir to an honorable name. He was united to an amiable woman. 
he was possessed of an ample fortune, and he had in prospect the greatest honors of the state. It does not appear that the public had been at all aware to what extent he was answerable for the policy which had brought so much obloquy on the government. The king, stern as he was, had far too great a heart to treat an error as a crime. He had just appointed the unfortunate young man secretary at war, and the commission was actually preparing. It is not improbable that the cold magnanimity of the master was the very thing which made the remorse of the servant insupportable. But, great as were the vexations which William had to undergo, those by which the temper of his father-in-law was at this time tried were greater still. No court in Europe was distracted by more quarrels and intrigues than were to be found within the walls of Dublin Castle. The numerous petty cabals which sprang from the cupidity, the jealousy, and the malevolence of individuals scarcely deserve mention. But there was one cause of discord which has been too little noticed, and which is the key to much that has been thought mysterious in the history of those times. Between English Jacobitism and Irish Jacobitism there was nothing in common. The English Jacobite was animated by a strong enthusiasm for the family of Stuart, and in his zeal for the interests of that family he too often forgot the interests of the state. Victory, peace, prosperity seemed evils to the stanch non-juror of our island if they tended to make usurpation popular and permanent. Defeat, bankruptcy, famine, invasion were in his view public blessings if they increased the chance of a restoration. He would rather have seen his country the last of the nations under James the Second or James the Third than the mistress of the sea. The umpire between contending potentates, the seat of arts, the hive of industry, under a prince of the house of Nassau or of Brunswick. The sentiments of the Irish Jacobite were very different, and it must, in candor, be acknowledged, were of nobler character. The fallen dynasty was nothing to him. He had not, like a Cheshire or Shropshire cavalier, been taught from his cradle to consider loyalty to that dynasty as the first duty of a Christian and a gentleman. All his family traditions, all the lessons taught him by his foster mother and by his priests, 
had been of a very different tendency. He had been brought up to regard the foreign sovereigns of his native land with the feeling with which the Jew regarded Caesar, with which the Scot regarded Edward I, with which the Castilian regarded Joseph Bonaparte, with which the Pole regards the autocrat of the Russias. It was the boast of the high-born Milesian that, from the twelfth century to the seventeenth, every generation of his family had been in arms against the English crown. His remote ancestors had contended with Fitzstephen and de Burgh. His great-grandfather had cloven down the soldiers of Elizabeth in the Battle of the Blackwater. His grandfather had conspired with O'Donnell against James I. His father had fought under Sir Phelim O'Neill against Charles I. The confiscation of the family estate had been ratified by an act of Charles II. No Puritan who had been cited before the High Commission by Laud, who had charged under Cromwell at Nasby, who had been prosecuted under the Conventicle Act, and who had been in hiding on account of the Rye House Plot, bore less affection to the House of Stuart than the O'Haras and MacMons, on whose support the fortunes of that house now seemed to depend. The fixed purpose of these men was to break the foreign yoke, to exterminate the Saxon colony, to sweep away the Protestant church, and to restore the soil to its ancient proprietors. To obtain these ends, they would without the smallest scruple have risen up against James, and to obtain these ends, they rose up for him. The Irish Jacobites, therefore, were not at all desirous that he should again reign at Whitehall, for they could not but be aware that a sovereign of Ireland, who was also sovereign of England, would not, and even if he would, could not, long administer the government of the smaller and poorer kingdom in direct opposition to the feeling of the larger and richer. Their real wish was that the crowns might be completely separated, and that their island might, whether under James or without James, they cared little, form a distinct state under the powerful protection of France. While one party in council at Dublin regarded James merely as a tool to be employed for achieving the deliverance of Ireland, another party regarded Ireland merely as a tool to be employed for effecting the restoration of James. To the English and Scotch lords, and gentlemen who had accompanied him from Brest, the island in which they sojourned was merely a stepping-stone 
by which they were to reach Great Britain. They were still as much exiles as when they were at St. Germain's, and indeed they thought St. Germain's a far more pleasant place of exile than Dublin Castle. They had no sympathy with the native population of the remote and half-barbarous region to which a strange chance had led them. Nay, they were bound by common extraction and by common language to that colony which it was the chief object of the native population to root out. They had indeed, like the great body of their countrymen, always regarded the aboriginal Irish with very unjust contempt, as inferior to other European nations, not only in acquired knowledge, but in natural intelligence and courage. As born Gibbonites, who had been liberally treated in being permitted to hew wood and to draw water for a wiser and mightier people. These politicians also thought, and here they were undoubtedly in the right, that if their master's object was to recover the throne of England, it would be madness in him to give himself up to the guidance of the O's and the Max who regarded England with mortal enmity. A law declaring the crown of Ireland independent, a law transferring mitres, glebs, and tithes from the Protestant to the Roman Catholic Church, a law transferring ten millions of acres from Saxons to Celts, would doubtless be loudly applauded in Clare and Tipperary. But what would be the effect of such laws at Westminster? What at Oxford? It would be poor policy to alienate such men as Clarendon and Beaufort, Ken and Sherlock, in order to obtain the applause of the rapparees of the Bog of Allen. Thus the English and Irish factions in the council at Dublin were engaged in a dispute which admitted of no compromise. A Vaux, meanwhile, looked on that dispute from a point of view entirely his own. His object was neither the emancipation of Ireland nor the restoration of James, but the greatness of the French monarchy. In what way that object might be best attained was a very complicated problem. Undoubtedly, a French statesman could not but wish for a counter-revolution in England. The effect of such a counter-revolution would be that the power which was the most formidable enemy of France would become her firmest ally, that William would sink into insignificance, and that the European coalition of which he was the chief would be dissolved. But what chance was there of such a counter-revolution? 
the english exiles indeed after the fashion of exiles confidently anticipated a speedy return to their country james himself loudly boasted that his subjects on the other side of the water though they had been misled for a moment by the specious names of religion liberty and property were warmly attached to him and would rally round him as soon as he appeared among them but the wary envoy tried in vain to discover any foundation for these hopes he was certain that they were not warranted by any intelligence which had arrived from any part of great britain and he considered them as mere daydreams of a feeble mind he thought it unlikely that the usurper whose ability and resolution he had during an unintermitted conflict of ten years learned to appreciate would easily part with the great prize which had been won by such strenuous exertions and profound combinations it was therefore necessary to consider what arrangements would be most beneficial to france on the supposition that it proved impossible to dislodge william from england and it was evident that if william could not be dislodged from england the arrangement most beneficial to france would be that which had been contemplated eighteen months before when james had no prospect of a male heir ireland must be severed from the english crown purged of the english colonists reunited to the church of rome placed under the protection of the house of bourbon and made in everything but name a french province in war her resources would be absolutely at the command of her lord paramount she would furnish his army with recruits she would furnish his navy with fine harbors commanding all the great western outlets of the english trade the strong national and religious antipathy with which her aboriginal population regarded the inhabitants of the neighboring island would be a sufficient guarantee for their fidelity to that government which could alone protect her against the saxon on the whole therefore it appeared to a vox that of the two parties into which the council at dublin was divided the irish party was that which it was for the interest of france to support he accordingly connected himself closely with the chiefs of that party obtained for them the fullest avowals of all that they designed and was soon able to report to his government that neither the gentry nor the common people were at all unwilling to become french End of Part 5 Recording by Robert Scott August 
the fifth, two thousand and seven.